welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 162, An Heir and the Fall of Stumbleoff. First, I'll just make a quick note about me. Uh, I'm slowly recovering and I had strep throat and uh, now kind of a bunch of other health issues that doctors have told me is basically all stress, including said there's some issues with my vocal cords. So my voice might sound a little bit different, although it's it's steadily recovering. But just uh, if I sound a bit different, again, that's what that is. But yeah, I'm I'm trying to learn to react, uh, to react, to relax more and uh, to kind of give myself a bit of a break, which I am not good at doing, but there you have it. Otherwise, just a big big thanks to a bunch of Patreon supporters. Uh, First to Jan Heinrichs for another generous donation to the podcast and to new patrons, Beth Rose, Chris Van, see if I can get this name right, Vingod. Vingardinand, Vingardinand, eh, but Chris, thank you, Chris. Uh, Helen Lapides, Stan Novoselsky, Adrian Todorov, Goran Berg, and to my friend Bonistov for increasing his pledge. So, thank you so much to all of you, and it's been nice to chat with a few of you. Um, one last thing, thank you to everyone who came to the Intelligence Speech Conference yesterday. It was a, a ton of fun, and I hope you enjoyed my presentations there. So getting into it. Last time, we mostly covered Aleko Konstantinov's account of his trip to the Grand Columbian Exhibition in Chicago. Throughout his book, we caught an interesting glimpse into life in the 1890s, what travel was like, what two new technologies were on the horizon, and generally how Bulgaria was portrayed to the outside world. We then covered Stambolov's successful move to change the Bulgarian constitution to further cement his power, in addition to allowing the royal heirs to not be orthodox, so that Ferdinand could find a wife. After this, new elections brought new lows in terms of turnout, and but still, despite this, Stambolov's party maintained power. The Iron Prime Minister was also still managing to get the better of Prince Ferdinand, but cracks are growing in the facade of his power. So all this, all this brings us to October 1893. In that month, a group of Macedonian-Bulgarian revolutionaries gathered gathered in Ottoman Thessaloniki to found the Macedonian Revolutionary Organization, or MRO. Quick note, uh, this organization is going to have a bunch of different names. It gets extremely confusing, but like uh, some of the main sources I use on them, I'll just call them the MRO for now, for simplicity's sake. Now, they had very lofty ambitions of autonomy for Macedonia, and ultimately independence, although you know some wanted also to join with Bulgaria, but frankly, they could hardly have imagined where this organization would eventually go. Interestingly, today, two political parties claim descendant from this organization, one tiny ultra-nationalist one in Bulgaria and a rather corrupt national party in North Macedonia. The latter actually governed in Skopje alone or in a coalition from 2006 until 2018, and as I kind of just noted, its leader is currently hiding out in Hungary to avoid being arrested for corruption. Now, 
besides these kind of modern descendants, at other points, M the MRO and its kind of descendants will operate as powerful terrorist organizations and even basically run large chunks of territory as their own governments. Now, that's getting ahead of ourselves, but just to give you a sense of the legacy of this, for now, quite modest group. Misha Glennie describes the founding of the group this way, writing, quote, On the evening of the 1st of November, 1893, Damian, or Dam, Gruev, a student, was walking with his friends on the Salonika Quay side when they bumped into an acquaintance, a young school teacher named Ivan Hajinikolov. The three men argued at length about the fate of Macedonia and the need to rid the province of Ottoman rule. They finished the evening by forming a revolutionary committee. Not unreasonably, they felt that the three men represented too narrow a base for such a task, and so a few days later they drafted another three friends into the Macedonian Central Revolutionary Committee. For the first few months, this was a Politburo without a party. Its members designed a seal depicting a gun and a dagger crossed under a bomb. Enclosing the three symbols were the words Svoboda ili smrt, freedom or death. By the time all 16 members held a founding congress a year later, in August 1894, in the interior town of Rezna, they had not yet managed to shoot, stab, or blow up anybody. That would soon change. End quote. And yeah, we, we can say Glennie is not uh, being modest about that last prediction. Also, you know, listeners paying attention will notice that uh, they basically took their kind of symbols and everything from Levski's. And in many ways, they are kind of... Yeah, they're, they're inspired by uh, Levski's revolutionary style in the way they're setting up the MRO. But now let's dive a little bit deeper into what the organization was in this early moment, because its early history has been substantially twisted to suit a variety of national narratives. Unsurprising, I mentioned all the modern political parties descended from it. So, you know, that comes with the territory. The fact that, again, yeah, these two modern political parties use the name should show us this. And as we know, Bulgaria, Greece, and Serbia all had territorial claims in Macedonia. So it's what you'd expect. Now, within Macedonia, obviously, there were some who supported each of these countries' national aims, and there were many who wished for an autonomous or independent Macedonia. In the case of MRO, the initial goal was simply to create an autonomous region within the Ottoman Empire covering Macedonia and Thrace, uh, but yeah, that's where they started. How this doesn't mean that the MRO's goals were against any of these competing national plans for Macedonian territories. It was assumed that autonomy would be the first step towards eventual union with Bulgaria, as I mentioned. And basically this is what had happened with Eastern Rumelia. You'll remember it got its independence along with Bulgaria and they eventually joined. Ironically, Stambulov himself argued for this exact course of action to a Russian journalist around this time. So this is kind of how the Bulgarian government itself even saw how things should develop in Macedonia. Importantly, though, the although this MRO at this moment did have a Bulgarian character, it did also advocate for a multi-ethnic state under the slogan Macedonia for the Macedonians. On the subject, one of its founders, Dr. Khrtotatarchev, wrote, quote, We talked a long time about the goal of this organization, and at last we fixed it on the autonomy of Macedonia with the priority of the Bulgarian element. We couldn't accept the position for direct joining to Bulgaria because we saw that it would meet big difficulties by reason of confrontation of the great powers and the aspirations of neighboring small countries and Turkey. 
it passed through our thoughts that one autonomous Macedonia could easier could ease more easily unite with Bulgaria subsequently, and if the worst came to worst, it could play a role as a unifying link of a federation of Balkan peoples. The region of Adrianople, as far as I remember, didn't take part in our program, and I think the idea to add it to autonomous Macedonia came later. End quote. So that, that gives you a deeper idea into just how they were thinking about these questions in these early days. Now, again, as I mentioned, you know, they took a lot of their iconography and slogans from Levski's secret committee, and they wanted to form secret cells in much the same way he had. Now, Ivan Hajinikolov listed the organization's initial principles in his memoir as being, one, the revolutionary organization should be established within Macedonia and should act in such a way that the Greeks and Serbs couldn't label it as a tool of the Bulgarian government. Two, its founders should be locals living in Macedonia. Three, the political motto of the organization should be the autonomy of Macedonia. Four, the organization should be secret and independent without any links to the governments of the liberated neighbor states. And five, from the Macedonian immigrants in Bulgaria and the Bulgarian society, only moral and material help for the struggle of the Macedonian revolutionaries should be required. So, I mean, already we're starting to see the kind of origination of some of the problems and how the people involved in the MRO are viewed today. You know, you could see, you argue that, okay, they wanted an autonomous Macedonia because that's what they said they wanted. But you could also argue that uh, they only wanted an autonomous Macedonia as a tool for joining with Bulgaria and that really they were sort of Bulgarian nationalists. I mean, there's something to be said for both arguments and frankly, those arguments are kind of very intertwined in the current uh, fight between Bulgaria and North Macedonia that's preventing North Macedonia from joining the EU. So you know, what I'm discussing right now is still a very hot topic and is still actually heavily impacting politics right now. Now, again, kind of talking about the initial principles and ideas behind the organization, Dam Gruev described the goals of the organization this way, writing, quote, we grouped together and jointly worked out a statute. It was based on the same principles, demand for the implementation of the Berlin Treaty. The statute was worked out after the model of the Bulgarian revolutionary organization before the liberation. Our motto was implementation of the resolutions of the Berlin Treaty. We established a central committee with branches, membership fees, etc. The swearing in of each member was also envisioned. In the regulations, there was nothing concerning the Serbian propaganda, but we intended to counteract it by enlightening the people. End quote. So, again, gives you a little bit of an insight into how they were thinking at this moment, although these quotes are largely from memoirs written later. Now, as I mentioned before, this organization won't really be doing much for a few years, but I wanted to start with some understanding of its founding, its mission, and how it saw itself. But with one caveat. I think I mentioned before, but it's worth saying again, nearly everything about this organization will change over time. It will change its name. It will split apart. It will reform. It will split again. It's a very messy history. All that I can say is you can't take anything I said about the organization in 1893 and assume it applies to the organization at another time. Another thing to mention is that the MRO will soon have rivals, as within a year, the Greek National Society will be founded to push Greek irredentism, particularly in Macedonia. 
Much like the MRO, it will evolve over time from funding schools and pro-Greek propaganda to eventually sending their own guerrilla bands into the territory. Back in 1886, the Serbian Society of St. Sava was founded to promote Serbian identity amongst the Macedonians, but it hasn't been that successful, and its activities were also in part kind of inspired by the founding of the MRO uh, as it kind of evolved over time. But anyways, in the next episode, I'm going to talk a bit more about questions of Macedonian identity and, and kind of dive into Bulgarian, Bulgaria's kind of evolving policies towards that. But for now, that's kind of a lot of about the MRO, what they were doing. All this brings us to another key event which occurred just a few days after the founding of MRO, the death of Alexander Battenberg. Now, <clears throat> this probably comes as a bit of a shock because, well, he was only 36. Remember, he took the throne when he was in his early 20s. Well, following his abdication six years earlier in 1886, he had mostly lived in Graz, Austria and married an Austrian actress. Together, they had a son and a daughter. What happened to him? How did he die at such a young age? Well, pretty simple. Ruptured appendix. It's you know one of those things that is not a huge deal these days, but could certainly kill you in the late 19th century. And just, yeah, a stark reminder of how fragile life was in this time. Now, his death was an enormous relief for Prince Ferdinand, because although Battenberg had formally renounced to the throne, he still served as a rallying point for many Bulgarians who were disaffected with Ferdinand's rule. Now that he was gone, Ferdinand truly had no rivals for his position and therefore felt more secure. This was also a chance for Ferdinand to honor his predecessor and thereby kind of bolster his own popularity. Stephen Constant described what happened next, writing, quote, On Battenberg's death, Ferdinand made arrangements for a splendid state funeral in Sofia. The body, dressed in Alexander's Austrian general's uniform, was put into its coffin in Austria and then on a funeral train to Sofia. On Stamblov's orders, a group of Bulgarian officers boarded the train at the Bulgarian frontier, secretly forced the lock of the coffin, I bet you're all wondering what's coming next, stripped the Austrian uniform and dressed the body in a Bulgarian general's uniform. No one at the funeral was any wiser. The coffin remained unlocked but shut. Stamblov just didn't feel right for his countrymen to give a state funeral to an Austrian general. End quote. Anyways, a mausoleum holding Battenberg's remains would, be, would open in central Sofia four years later, and that's where you can find them today. I'll attach a photo on this, uh, the page linked to this episode where you can see what it looks like, and if you're ever in Sofia, you can feel free to visit. And that ends the role of Alexander Battenberg in this story a short and rather tragic life dedicated in part towards helping Bulgaria realize its potential following so many long centuries of Ottoman rule. Otherwise, late 1893 saw the opening of a rail line from Sofia to nearby Pernik, the first zoo in the region opened in Sofia, and I also wanted to share some statistics from the year which give a clue into the state of Bulgaria's development at this moment. In 1890 in 1893, rather, literacy rates were 24% for men and 6.5% for women. So about 15.5% of the overall population of 3.3 million Bulgarians were literate, and this shows just how low these rates were at this point and how large the gap was between men and women, with nearly four literate men to every literate woman. Now, 
On January 18, 1894, the first heir to the Bulgarian throne since the 14th century, just as a note, the title of the Bulgarian heir is Prince of Turnovo, a title which ironically was vacated just weeks earlier by the death of Alexander Battenberg, who used it in his retirement. Anyways, but January 18th, the, the heir to the throne is finally born. Now, this birth was quite difficult for Queen, or sorry, Princess Marie Louise, made all the more difficult because Stefan Stambolov insisted on abiding by his constitutional duty to be present in order to ensure the heir was legitimate. And well, you can imagine having someone you intensely dislike in the room while you're giving birth uh, can't be pleasant, and the princess never forgave Stambolov for this. But despite all those stresses and the difficulties of the pregnancy, a healthy boy was the result. He was named Boris, after the man who converted the Bulgarians to Orthodox Christianity, despite the awkward fact that he was Catholic. But it was a name Ferdinand wanted, and he got his way. His full name, however, was, <clears throat> let's see if I can do this, Boris Clement Robert Maria Pius Stanislav Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. Pope Leo XIII himself was the boy's godfather, and he would be looked after by Miss Inman, a British nanny hand-selected by none other than Queen Victoria herself. Now, as mentioned in previous episodes, the birth of a male heir significantly strengthened Ferdinand's position in Bulgaria. First, obviously, it was just a popular move. You know, usually the population is delighted by the birth of an heir, and so it's a nice excuse to kind of rouse up some popularity. But beyond that, it greatly reduced the risk of assassination because most would-be assassins, largely backed by Russia, would not want the country to be run by a regency, and that's what would have happened now that there was an heir. So, with renewed confidence, Ferdinand was more determined than ever to obtain international recognition. But Stambolov cautioned the prince, telling him, quote, What do you need recognition for? You are recognized by the Bulgarian people. More than that, you do not need. The other grapes are sour. Let them hang. The day will come when Russia's friendship will, of itself, fall into our lap. We should not go as petitioners, for then we will have to pay a high price for the goods. Even if the price were not too high for you, it is too high for me and too high for Bulgaria. If history were to say of you that you had a successful reign against Russia's will, then it will be a great achievement far greater than it said than if it said that the prince recognized the error of his ways and set out on the road to Canossa, end quote. Now, I had to Google what Canossa meant, but it basically refers to a place you go for subjugation, humiliation, or penance. In other words, Ferdinand shouldn't humiliate himself by going begging to the Russians for recognition. Once again, Stambolov was showing a keen understanding of Ferdinand's psychology. Ferdinand's pride made him crave formal recognition, so Stambolov tried to make it a point of pride to not have it. Whether or not that tactic was working, Ferdinand by now had finally come to the conclusion that he needed to get rid of Stambolov. The prime minister's popularity was waning, although he did win another two bishoprics in Macedonia in the spring and was showered with praise for it, annoying Ferdinand. Still, Policy victories wouldn't change the fact that every other political party opposed Stambolov. Indeed, when Stambolov was greeted with news of his diplomatic victory in Macedonia, Ferdinand was in Vienna laying the diplomatic groundwork for his ousting. Now, the origins of Stambolov's downfall began with the Minister of War, one Colonel Sabov. 
He was a useful minister as his training in Russia enabled him to help keep the Russophile officers in check. He was, in general, an excellent minister, but he was a lousy husband. His wife was the niece of Ivan Geshov and had been pursued by many men before they married. Once they tied the knot, though, though, he basically locked her at home when he traveled in order to prevent her from cheating on him. In 1893, Colonel Rachel Petrov, a high-ranking officer and close confidant of Ferdinand, began to spread a rumor that, he, that the wife of this minister, the minister of war, was having an affair with the minister of justice, Slavkov. Stamlov didn't think this was very likely, but still he had his investigators look into the matter. They found no evidence of any affair, but Savov insisted on having a duel with Slavov nonetheless. Now, Stamlov was having none of this. He did not want his ministers dueling over a thing that his own investigators said never happened, and so he forbade them from dueling. But Savov said either he or Slavov would have to resign. At this point, Ferdinand returned from Austria to find Stamlov again threatening to resign over this whole mess. Fearing that a resignation at this moment would actually strengthen Stamlov's hand, Ferdinand rejected his resignation and insisted that Savov be allowed to resign. So the original guy who's a bad husband. At this point, things get even stranger as opposition newspapers began printing dozens of articles about Stambolov's supposed lurid social life and accusing Stambolov of sleeping with Savov's wife himself, leading the Minister of War Savov to now challenge the Prime Minister himself to a duel. You can see this whole thing's getting rather stupid rather quickly, but, uh, you know, 19th century men and their sense of honor, this is how it goes. Now, Stambolov actually accepted the duel, but when the seconds met, they decided that there was actually no reason to have the duel, and so they canceled it. So, to summarize the convoluted story at this point, a pro-Ferdinand officer used a rumor to drive a wedge between Stambolov and the one man who could help him control the Russophiles in the military, dramatically weakening Stambolov's control over the military. Ironically, Savov asked Ferdinand for help and the prince requested he be allowed to leave for Austria, which he was. So I guess now we're, we're yeah, looking at this whole matter, but basically everyone came to the issue of, or everything came down to the issue of, okay, if Savov is going to resign, who should the new minister of war be? Ferdinand wanted his friend Slavov, the guy who was accused of the affair and uh, was about to have a duel with him. Now, Slavov had basically orchestrated this whole thing, and so, yeah, Ferdinand wanted him, his good buddy, to get that position. Stamblov wanted a man named Colonel Marinov. Now, this disagreement led to Stamblov again deciding to offer his resignation, his seventh time doing so at this point, and it ultimately took an eight-hour meeting, but Ferdinand convinced Stamblov not to resign and to accept Slavov as Minister of War. As Duncan Perry put it, quote, The prime minister's decision was to prove fatal. An enemy was firmly planted in his camp, and Ferdinand, emboldened, could now shift to the offensive. End quote. Right, so, so essentially, to again recap, because it's just ugh, a messy, messy, you know, he said, she said situation. But an ally of Ferdinand orchestrated all these rumors, which led to the ousting of the minister of war, and then Ferdinand managed to get his 
handpicked person to be the new minister of war, which deprived Stambolov of a key ally in his cabinet. And indeed, Ferdinand had met with the Russian ambassador in Vienna to try to use the ousting of Stambolov as a tool to improve relations and finally obtain recognition from Russia. So that's kind of was that was Ferdinand's play that he wanted to, you know, overcome Stambolov, uh, get his own people in Stambolov's inner circle, and then get rid of Stambolov and use that as an excuse to kind of ingratiate himself to Russia. Now, with this new kind of potentially anti-Stambolov minister of war, the opposition press was even more emboldened by this sign of Stambolov's weakness. They accused him of being a coward for having not dueled Savov, and in response, Stambolov published a letter that Savov had written to Ferdinand in the middle of this whole affair, in which he begged the prince to protect him from Stambolov. The idea was to show that Savov was basically unstable and had something of a persecution complex, and that uh, he felt that Stambolov was so powerful he needed help, so to kind of make Stambolov look better. Except, Stambolov had miscalculated. At the publication of this letter, Ferdinand pounced. He ensured opposition newspapers got a hold of a telegram from him condemning Stambolov for publishing the private letter. In response, Stambolov once again submitted his resignation. At the same time, Ferdinand had authorized his new minister of war to have full control of the army, removing Stambolov's ability to use it. As a result, anti-government demonstrations began to occur throughout the country, and Stambolov was now powerless to stop them. So, when Ferdinand returned from his trip to Vienna, he now finally accepted Stambolov's resignation. But not before he turned to his minister of war and said simply, quote, I'm laying the fate of Bulgaria and of the crown into the hands of my brave army, whose minister you are. I do not want a single drop of Bulgarian blood spilt. End quote. Ultimately, Ferdinand and Stambolov sat for a final chat before Stambolov left office. Speaking for three hours, during which Stambolov tried to threaten Ferdinand not to come after his party, to which Ferdinand responded asking if Stambolov was persecuting him, and the response was simple. Quote, Was it not I who made you Prince of Bulgaria? And in consequence, I have borne the responsibility for your mistakes? End quote. So, yeah, Ferdinand's trying to play hardball with Stambolov, and Stambolov is kind of rebuffing him. Like, come on, I'm the reason you're here. News of Stambolov's resignation triggered shock and even a riot in Sofia. And this riot was basically attacked by soldiers sent under the command of the new minister of war. Stambolov himself firmly believed that despite all these setbacks, he would still be president of the National Assembly and now would just control things behind the scenes. It seemed that finally not running Bulgaria was almost inconceivable to him. But Bulgaria had changed. It was no longer the country Stambolov had risen to power in. He was now a spent political force, and the country was tired of him. Duncan Perry writes how, quote, Stambolov never grasped that the character of the constituency had changed. As people became more educated, they grew less tolerant of Levantine behavior. This was reflected in the makeup of the parliament. Many educated professionals had entered the National Assembly by 1894, whereas in 1886, 28.2% of the parliament had consisted of farmers, who were Stambolov's mainstay. This number had declined to 4.8% by 1894. 
Merchants and Industrialists, another group that had backed Stumbluff, had declined from 34.2 to 26%. In short, his supporters and potential supporters, especially inside Parliament, had dwindled markedly. Stumbluff was out of touch, and his ego was perhaps out of control. His authoritarian methods were no longer necessary, and his concessions, like the lifting of censorship, sowed the seeds for his own destruction. Stambloff was a victim of his own success. Using repression, he created the stable government needed for prosperity and order. But he failed to perceive that as he succeeded, he also needed to change his methods. When he did change, it was usually grudgingly and too late. End quote. Now, that was a long quote, but I think Perry really gets to the heart of what happened to Stefan Stambloff. True, it was ironic that the Savov affair was finally removing him from power, with Ferdinand even joking later that the entire crisis was, quote, brought about by Madame Savov's dirty drawers, end quote. But the irony is, there was no evidence that poor Madame Savov ever did anything wrong here, that she ever slept with anyone outside of her marriage. But Ferdinand was a crafty political figure, and it seems he won here. Still, only time will tell. If he can still muster, if, well, Ferdinand's crafty political maneuverings will work, and whether or not Stambloff can muster a comeback. So, next time, we'll see what the political aftermath of Stambloff's resignation was, how Ferdinand intends to take advantage of this victory, talk a bit more about identity in Macedonia, and cover a monumental assassination that's going to change a lot for Bulgaria. So, you'll want to check that out. In the meantime, this episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out the linked episode in the description here to see, you know, timelines, major characters, images, all kinds of cool stuff connected to this episode. And I will see you in the next one.